This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The American Indian Movement and citizens of the Oglala Nation took a stand against federal law enforcement meddling, oppression of Native Americans, and tribal corruption at Wounded Knee on this date in 1973. The action started a 71-day occupation that remains a historic event 50 years later. The event continues to be a source of academic, legal, and popular media debate. Today we'll hear from those who were there to recount what they observed and what it means to them today. It's the 50th anniversary of the Wounded Knee Occupation, right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A First Nation in British Columbia says it's found what are believed to be children's remains at a suspected gravesite of a former residential school. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the discovery comes after an 18-month effort to find potential graves. The Vancouver Island First Nation says it's found 17 suspected unmarked graves at the site of the former Alberni Indian Residential School. The work included interviews with survivors, historical records, and other documents. Although 17 suspected graves were found, records show that 67 students died at the school. Children from as many as 70 First Nations attended the Alberni Residential School during its operation from 1900 to 1973. Ground-penetrating radar was also used to look for possible graves at the site. In addition, Sherry Meeting, the lead researcher, says survivors told searchers where to look, and they knew multiple locations. Many spoke about forced abortions, multiple different burial locations without grave markers, finding skulls and human skeletal remains in and around the residence grounds as, as students. Meeting says many of the children died from medical conditions. Band officials say any investigations would be conducted independently with the consent of the Shashat First Nation. The elected chief councillor also wants the Canadian government to review the Royal Canadian Mounted Police role at the school. From 1942 to 1952, children at the Alberni School were subjected to nutrition experiments without the consent of their parents. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. The Central American country of Guatemala recently commemorated its National Day to remember victims of the country's armed conflict, a bloody civil war that lasted 36 years and killed more than 200,000 people, the majority of them indigenous. On that day, victims' groups filed legal action to stop the daughter of a former dictator convicted of genocide from running for president. Maria Martin reports. They stood in front of Guatemala's Supreme Court, hundreds of indigenous protesters carrying crosses, bearing the names of dead family members, as they filed a suit to keep conservative pro-military candidate Suri Rios off the presidential ballot. The attorney for the victims, Juan Marcos, says Guatemala's constitution prohibits the candidacies of family members of those who promoted military coups. In 1982, Suri Rios's father, General Efrain Rios Montt, gained power in a military overthrow. Hundreds of massacres took place during his rule. In 1993, he was convicted of genocide of the Ishil Maya, though the ruling was later overturned on a technicality. Meanwhile, Rios maintains she has every right to run, and she's a leading candidate for the June 25th election. I'm Maria Martin. 
A part of Alaska history has passed, along with Elizabeth Kudrin, who was remembered at a memorial service in Anchorage on Saturday as a great survivor. Few Alaskans know her story, and even fewer Americans. Kudrin was one of two remaining survivors from Attu, a remote Aleutian island captured by Japanese soldiers during World War II. Elizabeth was just a baby when she and the rest of her village were taken to Japan as prisoners of war. About half of them died during captivity. Her husband George says her death marks the end of an era. She's probably the matriarch of matriarchs, the last mom from Attu. Kudrin says his wife never talked about the war. It was too difficult. She died just a few days after her 82nd birthday on February 19th. Her brother is now the last remaining survivor of Attu. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support from AmeriCorps VISTA, whose members serve to alleviate poverty while earning money for college and gaining professional skills. Rewarding service opportunities can be found at A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The occupation of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, remains one of the most pivotal moments in Native American activism. Today marks the 50th anniversary of the start of the 71-day armed standoff between the federal government and the fledgling American Indian movement. AIM was flexing its muscles, raising awareness of continued oppression by the U.S. government and the lack of accountability for broken treaties. And the corrupt and dangerous governance on the Pine Ridge Reservation became a flashpoint. Today, we'll get an accounting of the events at Wounded Knee from people who were there. As always, we encourage listeners to chime in. Do you remember the occupation or when you first learned about it? Were you at Wounded Knee in 1973? And we especially want to hear from folks from the Oglala Nation today about what that event means to you. Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also post a comment on our social media our Twitter handle is 180099native. Joining us from Ponca Tribal Land in the state of Oklahoma is Dwayne Camp. He is a warrior from Wounded Knee and an elder who is Ponca. Dwayne, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you. Joining us from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina is Walter Little Moon. He was a resident of Wounded Knee at the time of the occupation. He is Oglala, Lakota, and Northern Cheyenne. Walter, welcome to Native America Calling as well. No. And joining us from Ottawa, Ontario, in Canada is Russ Daibo. He is a First Nations policy analyst. He is Kanawagi Mohawk. Russ, welcome to Native America Calling too. Thank you. 
Dwayne, I'd like to go ahead and start with you today. You traveled to Wounded Knee in 1973 along with your two brothers. What inspired you all to make that trip? Well, we traveled separately, as a matter of fact, the three of us. Uh, and just for the record, they had quite a meeting prior to Wounded Knee at a place called Calico. They were at Calico Hall, and the Oglalas uh, got together, and they met, and representatives from AIM were there. And they asked uh, our brother Carter, Carter Camp, to lead the first contingent of warriors in. And and he uh, he writes about that afterwards as uh, very moving how he prayed prior to actually going into Wounded Knee and he he prayed to the uh, to uh, Wakanda and also to the Oglalas that the uh, that had suffered so much at the because of Wounded Knee and he led the first contingent in. Uh, Brother Craig and I were there shortly afterwards, and we stayed throughout the 71-day occupation. Uh, and I've, I'm living down here in Ponca country, but our Ponca country, as I said, was once right up at the that border between Nebraska and South Dakota. That was originally our country before we were marched down here at gunpoint. Uh, and incidentally, that was our trail of tears. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's been called Footprints in Blood because when the Ponkas went in to see the Indian agent down here, uh, they left bloody footprints because of that walk. We lost about a third of the Ponkas on that walk. Okay. So that was our trail of tears. At any rate, uh, I'm glad you guys are putting the word out uh, about about Wounded Knee. It was, it was a game changer. Uh, there's been been a whole different native experience since that period of time, and I know because I'm ancient. Uh, <laughs> I was born in the depths of the Depression, the Great Depression, and I recall how it was for the biggest part of my life uh, prior to Wounded Knee and the wave of pride uh, that has kept rolling through through native country since that period of time. Mm-hmm. Well, Dwayne, thanks for for leading us off, and uh, we're definitely going to talk more about your experiences, but I, I want to go to Walter now. Walter, as someone who lived uh, very close to the village of, of Wounded Knee at that time, how did the occupation impact your community? Oh, this was something that was... Uh, well, we, we didn't know. We didn't even expect that. Uh, I do... I knew they were coming into Pine Ridge from Calico, but on top of the BIA buildings, uh, you could see machine guns, sandbags all lined up there. And so when the AIM members came from Calico, instead of stopping in uh, Pine Ridge, they made a left turn and drove into Wounded Knee. So we were, uh, my brother and I, we had picked up our brother from the hospital. We had taken him home. And so we left him at my mother's place. And then we came back and uh, stayed around my mother's place, just watching him, making sure he would uh, be okay for the night. And next morning, a guy rode up and said, the trading post is open. 
if you got any bills and if you need any groceries, go down there and help yourself. That everything's going to be free. So Ben and I, we walked down there. <laughs> and the whole wounded knee trading post was just completely destroyed. Shells were sitting there, people were walking around pushing carts, just loading up anything that they could. Mm-hmm. There was nothing left in there except, uh, you know, mops, brooms, stuff like that. Stuff that you couldn't use. But anyway, after that, uh, we heard some sh- uh, people coming by and saying, you know, this belongs to AIM now. And, uh, and I couldn't understand what they were talking about. So I asked Ben, I said, well, go back down to the trading post and see what information we could find and un- try to understand what's going on. And we've got, when we got there to the trading post, they said that they had taken prisoners, four prisoners. It might, it might have been five. But uh, they were uh, prisoners up at the Catholic Church. So we decided to walk up there and see if we could talk to them. And all of these uh, AIM people came out, and they all, all had rifles. And one even pointed a rifle in my chest and kept uh, hitting me in the chest with his uh, rifle. He said, uh, uh, as far as he understood, local people were supposed to be left alone. So I said, we are local people. These are people that uh, uh, we know we know, and we grew up with them. And uh, they wouldn't let us in. said, if you go in there and you talk to them, they said, we're going to shoot you. We're going to kill you right here. And so that was the first threat. And there were many, many more threats after that. Life uh, at that time, you know, shooting didn't start for about 10 days, maybe a little bit less. And uh, when we went down to the store, even maybe try to get some tobacco, even that we couldn't find anything. And nobody didn't want to trade. And nobody didn't want to talk to us. And uh, nobody would pay attention to us. So, you know, we were outside when, uh, when uh, I think it was maybe the third or fourth day. Uh, they brought this cow in. And I thought this was very... Hilarious. <laughs> they brought a cow in, and a guy was, uh, didn't know what to do. So one of the local guys saw him and said, You kill the cow. Shoot him between the eyes. The guy pulled out a pistol, a little small pistol, like a water gun. And he shot that cow in the head six times. But well, I think the bullets just bounced off his head. And I thought that was funny. I was standing there watching them. Then the other guy said, get a rifle, a little, uh, at least a 30 odd 6 and hold it uh, at least a foot and a half to two feet from the uh, from his skull and then shoot it. So after they killed it, then when you re- that's when you realize these guys grew up in the city. Mm-hmm. They're nothing but city slickers. They don't, they don't know anything about reservation life or how people uh, do things to exist. And uh, then the uh, same guy told him, you cut the jugular vein and let the blood uh, come out. 
and try to uh, get it to bleed out as much as possible. I said, then you gut it, take the uh, insides out, and you turn it on its back. And you make uh, slits down the legs. I said, that's how you get the skin off. And make sure that the head is off. It'll be easier to rule that way. But that's okay. how it went. Walter, this is really fascinating to, to hear you share these memories. And it, it really sounds like there was just a lot of pressure there on local residents to take sides, either with AIM or, or the Dick Wilson government. Where did you fall in that fight? I didn't fight it. I didn't have anything to do with either one of the groups. After I seen what they did with the cow, I kind of got scared. And the thing that really scared me was these people will shoot anything and anyone who gets out of the line. I've been in the service, and I've been shot at, but nothing like this. And I knew I had to watch my back every minute. So Ben and I, we kind of worked out the situation, just like walking in front of each other or walking to the side. So we could always take care of each other, walk in the dishes. So a lot of stuff like that, uh, you begin to see it, and you begin to hear it. Okay. And it's very uh, discouraging. Walter, I'm, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a break, but we definitely want to learn more about your experiences as well as our other guests on the show today. Uh, we have three guests, uh, all of them uh, at the Wounded Knee occupation in, in some way or another, and uh, more with all of our guests when we come back. If you were there or if you have memories of that time, we'd sure like to hear them on our show today. The number to call, 1-800-996-2848. States' protections against exorbitantly high interest rates are all over the map. New Mexico just joined the list of those capping interest rates at 36%, a fraction of where it was for the last four decades. We'll talk about storefront payday loan businesses and alternatives available to Native borrowers. That's on the next Native America Calling. Good day. Think teeth. Medicaid and CHIP cover many children's dental services, including teeth cleaning, fluoride treatments, and filling. For more information about children's dental health, contact your Indian health care provider, visit insurekidsnow.gov, or call 877-543-7669. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're hearing different perspectives from folks who are at the occupation of Wounded Knee, which began 50 years ago today. If you'd like to contribute any insights to today's conversation, you can call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a post on our social media. Uh, speaking now with Walter Little Moon, he was a resident near Wounded Knee at the time of the occupation. And Walter, you know, when you talk about the occupation now with other people, uh, Pine Ridge residents, uh, reflecting back now 50 years later, what do you hear from them? Do they, do they have similar memories such as yourself? Uh, just some of these, these memories you shared? Exactly, uh, beneficial. 
They more or less blamed the Wounded Knee community uh, residents for creating uh, the AIM people coming in there. And, uh, you know, like I said earlier, we didn't even know that they were coming to Wounded Knee. But after they were there, and uh, we got blamed for just about everything, whether it was in Pine Ridge, Ogallala, Porcupine, Kyle. They said, hey, they come from Wounded Knee, so don't even talk to them. Don't even think about them. Said, what what's happening there is their own fault. Now, stuff like that, and it was very hurtful. But in a way, um, what took place during that time when, uh, when the shooting started was that a lot of the AIM members would start breaking into houses and start uh, vandalizing and looting everything that they had. Other people had, you know, beadwork, uh, even uh, cast iron kettle uh, pots, cooking pots that were handed down through uh, their own grandparents. A lot of that stuff just disappeared. But we know for a fact that there was people going in and out just about every night. There was a certain route that they used. So a lot of stuff like that, uh, you know, they start burning things. I know they burnt uh, my uncle's place, and they broke into uh, my mother's house and just tore the whole down house down completely. The roof was sitting uh, on the ground. All the boards were lined with bunkers. They even took our stoves, heating stoves up there. So a lot of these things is how why I remember that uh, occupation. And that's one of the reasons I have nothing to do with either group because they did a lot of harm. The elderly people in Wounded Knee are all gone now. They all passed away with broken hearts, but the AIM didn't care. They didn't even come back to Wounded Knee. Just one person came back, and he only stayed because he just wanted to show off his 1957 Thunderbird Classic. Mm which probably cost him about $35,000, $40,000. I don't know where he got the money from, but I suspect he got it from the donations. But even that donation that did come to Wounded Knee uh, ended up in Pine Ridge. All the charitable churches, they were all running some kind of uh, uh, ring there, getting donations whether it was food, money, clothing. And then they would turn around and say, we don't have anything. Everything's already been given out. But it ended up that they were given to their own relations. But nobody in Wounded Knee. So that's how we had to survive. We had nothing, not even buckets to haul water in. There was only one way that we could walk in order to get water. And we used gallon jugs, plastic gallon jugs, carried uh, two at a time on each shoulder like they did with a long stick across the back. We walked down the road. We had to walk right in the center of the road. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't do, didn't do that, then they threatened to shoot us. That was the U.S. Marshals. But they also treated us with respect. As the word of uh, uh the tribal council police uh, 
public safety, the police department, were there mostly harassing us one way or another. They would come drive through, and finally the marshal just ordered them out. So a lot of things like that that people don't want to talk about. Okay. All right. But Walter, I I'm sorry to interrupt just so fascinating, Walter, but I, I know we've got that heart out with you, uh, and you have to, to move on, and, and we have other guests as well. So really want to thank you for joining us today, Walter, and sharing your memories. Again, folks, uh, it was Walter Little Moon. Uh, he was a resident at Wounded Knee during the time of the occupation. He's Oglala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne. Uh, and I, I know you want to go, Walter. Your memories are, are very valuable, but uh, we do are going to go ahead and move on with the conversation now. And Dwayne, I want to go back to you. And we have Dwayne Camp, uh, Ponca Elder, who was also a warrior there at Wounded Knee. And uh, Dwayne, give us a, again a little bit more context here. What was the main motivating factor during the standoff there for AIM? When I first went back, it was because uh, in the very beginning, uh, Brother Carter had said they were in a hell of a fight, and 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 that was I could hear the gunfire, and I I arrived there early on, and got a real education, and the elder that spoke uh, just a moment ago, I'd like to say that that living in a war zone, being from there, must have been horrible. And I'm very sorry for the the pain and, and the terrible loss that the residents and those in that area felt because it was a war zone and there were people being killed on, on both sides. We had the uh, not just the Justice Department and the military, the U.S. military against AIM, but also uh, the goon squad, the Oglala, the, the Dick Wilson, the uh, the corrupt chairman that really lit the match on this thing uh, on Wounded Knee. He had this uh, bunch of guys that uh, had a horrible reputation. Anyway, they called themselves the goon squad, and that stood for Guardians of the Oglala Nation. Uh, that's they were they they liked that you know they wanted to be called the Goon Squad anyway. Uh, when when uh, Brother Carter was meeting with the Ogalas at Calico Hall prior to Wounded Knee, uh, they chose him. They asked him to come in first. Now then the uh, of the other local leaders and they were all there, but it turns out and this surprised me because I was ignorant. But it was the women folk that really spoke up. And the men, uh, the old chiefs and so on, they, they kind of hung in the background. And, uh, but the women would, would voice the thoughts of, the, of all those folks. And it was an education for someone like me, who's from a, a different res, way down south, and, and completely different and it was a war zone and and, and those people did suffer uh, I might say that since then uh, my belief has never wavered that the good was done there far far well I can't say it outweighs the, the hurt the damage because I, how would I know it wasn't me that was being hurt and, and felt the losses there but 
I can say that the native people across the land, and I was witness to it, they became proud again, uh, proud of who they were, and and began to to make changes in, in Native American policy with the government, uh, with all ki kinds of legislation was enacted in the following years because we stood up and fought the government. Uh, we fought uh, literally in the streets for Native rights. And it wasn't just there, but there was, there was uprisings and, and, and fighting across the country. It, uh, and people were killed and, and were hurt. But the Native nations of this country have coalesced and come together and done great things for the people since that period of time. And Wounded Knee was, was, the, uh, was the spark, uh, I, I believe. That there, were, there was battles at Four Corners and and uh, and of course, you guys all know about Scotts Bluff and Custer, uh, but they were fighting in the monasteries. I mean, not the monasteries, but in that area in Wisconsin, where the people were being treated so badly, and in upstate New York, as I said, in Four Corners out in California, Native people were began standing up for their rights and insisting on a place that the the national and international. Uh, Table of Nations, and Wounded Knee helped light that spark. I was just a uh, a warrior, a foot soldier, and and I I got to see so much that took place at that time, and so much has taken place since that time, and I I think that uh, even Standing Rock was was just another step in that same direction, and they came. Uh, by the thousands and thousands to Standing Rock, and I think that would, Wounded Knee helped light that light that fire. Duane, I want to ask you more about your role there during the occupation. I mean, what was it like? You were there all seventy-one days, and what was just like a typical day like there? You know, with, through it all, what, what was it like for you? Well, everybody, you know, from a, they came from across the country. I mean, as I said, I, and they were getting arrested at carloads 500 miles away that were heading to Wounded Knee because the, the feds had put out the word. And they really defiled the name of the American Indian Movement and just a bunch of uh, thugs and, and uh, hoodlums, punks from uh, the inner city come out. And, and we found that that, that that just was not the case. Uh, I mean, I hope everybody found that out. Uh, when we got up in the morning, everyone had uh, had their own agenda. There was no, uh, you weren't assigned this or assigned that. You didn't punch in and punch out for any, any period of work. But people gravitated to their natural, natural uh, inclinations, I guess. I uh, I remember brother brother Craig got together with a bunch of uh, ex combat Vietnam combat vets. They sort of gravitated together and and they formed an inner core of security and they stayed busy keeping that inner core shored up. 
and things like uh, they were aware of munitions and arms and so on. And uh, hey, a native guy from Oklahoma, I don't know if we can use his name or not, Bobby will call him. Uh, he's he's got that most famous picture because he's holding up a AK-47 over his head with that banana clip. And that was the one and only automatic weapon we had, not enough ammunition for it. But we were armed just with the 22s and shotguns. Uh, but we we bore arms against the enemy, against the, the United States government at that time. And I I, I believe that it, it made a, a change in Indian country. I believe it, uh, it allowed us to to become a, a more dedicated people, and and we we started getting things done in Indian country, and I I think most importantly it, it educated the people, and certainly guys like me, that we need to let our children know about our true history. We let to let them know that that it was a bunch of ragtag bunch of uh, savages hiding out behind trees and stuff when when the uh, European settlers came over here, that there were many, many uh, sovereign nations with their own land, their own language, their own customs and traditions. There were many, many on this land living in harmony with nature. And I, I I learned these things, and I've been helping to pass that on. I think we we need for our children to know that, that who we are, and not not what has been taught to us all our lives, and made us believe and feel and act like second class citizens because that was the way we were treated. I believe that we've brought we've brought change. The American Indian Movement. Uh, helped bring about that change. We helped light the fire uh, because of that spark that was wounded me. Dwayne, when, when you reflect back when, when, it, when it started, 50 years ago today, February 27th, you were there the whole time. Uh, did you have any idea that it would last as long as it did? It extended all the way into May. No. No, I didn't. And, and uh, there, after the blockades were up and there was no way for anyone to get in and out, in or out, because the goon squad had us surrounded. But we had the Justice Department and the U.S. soldiers uh, had us surrounded. And there were people that knew the terrain that were from there, and they did get in and out. And, and pack trains were organized after the blockades went up, and uh, we could get insulin in for our diabetics and get uh, hygiene products for our women and help for our, our little kids for uh, baby food and stuff. Uh, that was that was a big step to pack trains. That made a big difference. Uh, but we all found ourselves uh, with wanting to help. There was volunteers. There was absolutely no shortage ever of volunteers. And I got a handful together. And we, the largest building uh, there when the D was a huge trading post with a giant full basement. And uh, when when things were slow, we had a poker game down in the basement, one off in one corner. And 
upstairs, we uh, great open space. We took a, a big chunk of that, and I got gathered up a little group, and we we were in charge of housing, and we made little apartments out of two by fours we nailed up in cardboard, and that was just for a little bit of privacy for some of the couples that, that might have had little babies or something. Uh, we had a uh, a clinic. The medics had a clinic set up. And curiously enough, I, as I recall, the first wounded we had, a guy got shot in the knee. And uh, they were, I, I thought it ironic or appropriate or something that, uh, of course, they saved us DNA. And the medics were, they were kind of in awe. They felt like that that kind of a, a slug from that high power should have blown his knee off. Dwayne, we're going to have to go to break here. Uh, folks, really, really interesting conversation today, learning about the wounded knee occupation. We'll be right back. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at aarp.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing our conversation about the occupation of Wounded Knee, and there's still time to join our conversation. So what are you waiting for? Call us, 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. Especially anyone listening up in Pine Ridge, we really want to hear what the impact of the occupation was on tribal members when it occurred in 1973 and what it means today, 50 years later. 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. Let's uh, talk to our third guest now. Again, Russ Dibo. He's up in Canada. Uh, Russ, uh, tell us more. What led you to Wounded Knee in 1973? Well, for me, I was a teenager then. And I was, um, you know, trying to learn more about uh, Indian rights. And uh, I was actually at the takeover of the Bureau of Indian Affairs building in November of 1972. I hitchhiked down there after it started, and um, I met Lakota people there, and I found out about the uh, Trail Broken Treaties that, you know, that, that was a caravan that went across the country. I didn't know that. I just saw what, a, you know, was on TV, and uh, I started learning about the Broken Treaty and what was going on, and um, of course, the Nixon administration wanted everybody out of there, so they paid for everybody to leave the building. And um, a few months later, that's when, um, you know, the situation at Wounded Knee came on the news again. And uh, I remembered meeting the Lakota people in Washington, D.C. And I didn't go there until March myself. Uh, it was when they kicked the media out. And, it, you know, you started hearing on the news, government sources uh, said today kind of thing. So there was like a blackout. So I hitchhiked out there to find out what was going on to South Dakota. And I, I came in through um, Gordon, Nebraska. I hitchhiked to there and I was walking north and a carload of Lakota picked me up. And um, they said, are you going to the knee? And I said, yeah. And, uh, 
they uh, took me to the edge of the reservation and they pointed to this uh, house and it had some outbuildings and he said, go down there. They're, they're going to take you in into the knee. So I, uh, I walked down the hill, went there. And as soon as I got into the yard, somebody came out of the house and said, get in the barn. And I went in the barn and there was all these other people standing around <laughs> and um, they said, we're going to go in when it gets dark. So we all had to take uh, pack loads of supplies, you know, uh, what the previous speaker was talking about. We were part of that, that um, local people taking, uh, you know, outside people into Wounded Knee. And I had about, I don't know, 80 pounds of supplies that they put into the pack and told me to carry in. So there was um, at least a dozen of us like that, each carrying a pack of supplies in. And so they let us in and, you know, we had to it's a hilly country. We had to stay in the valleys and go through at night, avoiding the um, U.S. Marshals and their armored personnel carriers and the FBI on horseback and all that stuff. And they got us into Wounded Knee just before dawn. It was about an eight-mile hike. And we got in there. And um, once I got in there, then, you know, they had people processing. Uh, people were coming in, finding out who they were, and then telling them, giving them assignments. You know, I, I was a transient, I guess you could say, like others that came and went. Um, because I was inside a wounded knee for a week. Um, but it was a very intense uh, experience, uh, warlike, I guess you could say, with firefights, flares, and all of that. But they told me to sleep in the church on a pew, that white church on the hill. That's where I slept the whole time I was there. And they told me during the day to go into this one bunker, um, just... Um, left of that church um not too far from where you know the the main uh, burial site was from the massacre and after the day was done then they said i could do what i want after my duty at the bunker and uh so i would go down and listen at headquarters there where i'd listen to the radio chatter between the frontline bunkers and and uh, they also monitored the U.S. Marshals and the FBI, uh, you know, chatter on the radio. And then at night, uh, Russell Means and Dennis Banks would give an update on the talks with the federal government. And when I was there, there was about two or 300 people in Wounded Knee, I think. And a lot of people were coming and going all the time, like myself. And after I figured out what was going on, I learned about, you know, Dick Wilson and the goons and... Um, Oscro, you know, the Glala Sioux Civil Rights Organization, asking AIM to come in and everything. Uh, I had an idea of what they were trying to negotiate. And there was a young Lakota guy after about a week. He was 17 years old, too, my same age. He was from Porcupine, South Dakota, about eight miles north. And he said, I'm going home. Uh, do you want to come out with me? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll go with you. So he led me out of Wounded Knee, again, uh, under the cover of darkness, and we made it to his family's home in Porcupine. And they hid me there for about a week before they could get me off the reservation to, to you know, take a bus to go back home because uh, they didn't want uh, Dick Wilson and his goons to see me there. So it was, you know, kind of a war wartime situation, too, a lot of tents. I could only go out at night because they didn't want any neighbors to see me. So I was inside and outside, you know, for two weeks altogether. Two weeks. So, and then what was it, Russ, that, that prompted you to want to leave after two weeks as, as opposed to staying longer? 
Well, I went there to try and find out what was going on because, like I said, I was at the takeover of the BAA building. And that's where I started to learn about the, you know, the Treaty of Fort Laramie of 1868 and what was going on. And I went to Wounded Knee because there was a media blackout, right, on what was happening. So I went there to, to try and figure out um, what the real situation was because, you know, I was a teenager trying to learn more about rights, about these treaties. Because I'm a Mohawk, you know, member of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. We have our own history, our own treaties. Um, but I was, you know, just starting to learn then. And um, I figured that, you know, I had a good idea of what the conflict was about. And I was a high school dropout at that time. But that experience, you know, being in firefights and that, like, at one point I was out in an open field and a flare went up. And I was walking with an Alaska Native guy named Angel. That's all I knew him by. Uh, and he said, hit the ground. And uh, so we were laying on the ground in this open field on our way up to that church. And then a firefight started. And so we were out in the open during that firefight. And um, you could see the tracer bullets and that coming from the armored personnel carriers. Um, and there were other firefights when I was there, but that was the one where I felt most vulnerable because I was out in the open. Mm. Anyway, we had to wait for the flares to stop and the firefight and to make it, you know, hightail it up to the church. And um, all those experiences led me to get my finish my high school uh, uh, education and go start going to post secondary, um, <clears throat> which is what I did. I went to a number of Native Studies programs in the U.S. and Canada, including studying with Von Deloria Jr. in graduate school in the 1980s down in Tucson. Um, and then I become a policy analyst and an advisor to different uh, First Nation communities in Canada including uh, now I'm a special advisor to the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. So that All experience right. at Wounded Knee and at Washington, D.C. kind of put me on a trajectory of learning more about rights and history, law, politics. Well, Russ, thank you for all these perspectives. Uh, really, really interesting to learn so much uh, about what happened uh, 50 years ago in Wounded Knee. Let's go to the phones now. We have Wilma, who is listening on Keeley in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, Wilma, hello. Hello. Hi, Wilma. You're Hi. On the air. Um, I was 17 years old when wounded when uh, wounded knee occupation happened, and I'm from Ogal, South Dakota. I wanted to clarify why wounded knee happened. It was an injustice that being done to Native Americans all across the United States. And when our treaty rights were not being honored, even up to today, they're not being honored. But because of our relatives, our people, American Indian Movement, all the people that came, they stood as one, united. And that, that's what it was about. It was about trying to solve and make better life for the Native people across the reservations and across United States. Wilma, thank you for that call. Really appreciate you chiming in. We've got another caller who's listening on Keeley. It's a voice we know well. Chanupa. Chanupa, hello. I understand you're on the Wounded Knee Walk right now. What, what are you doing? What are you seeing? Yes, I, I am. I wanted to share this. What 
Sister uh, Wilma Blacksmith had expressed on her heart's feeling was true and is still true going on today. But this memorial walk is to honor all of our people, past and present. We cannot forget like Raymond Yellowstone. Raymond Yellowstone was the reason why the American Indian Movement came in here back in the days. There was no drugs. There was no alcohol. It was the abuse of racism at the hands of white America's behavior, cattle ranchers and so forth. And that's what led my cousin, Sievert Youngbear, to bring Amy. And we have one leader that was here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. He passed on, the late Russell Means. I was his personal bodyguard. Russell did a lot for the reservation. He's part of the establishment of the TV radio that we have here. And on this memorial walk, I'm with the Tokalas, the Kit Foxes, led by Earl Tall, and um, we Stronghearts accompanied them. We did the prayer, and I'll be doing the prayer when they arrive at this marking. I'll do the prayer for them. And remember, people, listen to this. If it wasn't for the traditional Lakota people, this is what's coming back, the Lakota language. Everyone says the language is gone. No, it's not true. I was raised with our Lakota language through my family. And my late grandmother, Cecilia Martin, was one of the last living AIM grandmas of that era, which brought her tacos that to go inside with me in 1973. So that's what I wanted to contribute to a lot of you. The abuse by law enforcement and white people is still going on within the state of South Dakota and elsewhere where Indians roam. And I wanted to contribute that on behalf of my Aunt Bernice Whitehawk. You just heard her. She said some opening remarks, and that's great. Thank you all. The, the writers and the walkers are coming close, so I'm going to get ready to pray. All righty. That was Chanupa listening up on Keeley and Pine Ridge. Thank you for those thoughts. Two great calls coming up from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. And Russ, I, I want to go back to you and talk a little bit more about the occupation. And you, know, you mentioned that um, you were there for two weeks, and, and you listened to a lot of the radio correspondence, and, and there's always been these concerns of, of FBI uh, monitoring and spying and things like that. Did you experience or witness any uh, anything shady with regard to any kind of radio transmissions or anything like that from the FBI or the marshals or anybody? No, what I was listening to was, you know, the headquarters inside of Wounded Knee um, where they were listening to the talks from the bunkers, you know, the AIM bunkers, and uh, they were also monitoring the communications of the U.S. marshals and the FBI. So it was just whatever they were communicating with each other. And sometimes there'd be some cross communication, like in firefights, there'd, there'd be some talk back and forth to kind of put work towards a ceasefire, you know, mm-hmm. when I was there, but I was there in March, right? Things got worse after I left because the armored personnel carriers were brought in closer. They closed the circle and the bil- bullets started going through the buildings. And um, that's when I think Buddy Lamont got shot and, um, other people were getting injured when they started putting more pressure on um, people in the village. Um, but that happened after I left because it went right into, like I think you said, May. I was there in March. Okay. And Dwayne, I want to listen, uh, ask you another question as well, Dwayne. And I mean, if you could go back, Dwayne, 50 years ago to 1973, if you could go back in time, would you do it all over again? Would you go back to of Wounded course. Knee and take a stand? Absolutely. You know, he mentioned the, uh, oh, darn it, was uh, Raymond Yellow Thunder. And Raymond Yellow Thunder 
we knew about him. Uh, that was one of the reasons that that wounded knee happened. Uh, he was just a, a kind, old, well-respected Indian man on the reservation, and he was really looked up to. And they they killed him. They had had another old Indian man in Gordon, Nebraska. He was walked. I mean, uh, made to crawl down Main Street. Uh, they they killed Gordon Yellow Thunder after driving him around four hours in a car and severely beating him up, and then they beat him to death in an alley uh, outside the American Legion Hall. Uh, and then, the, and Dwayne, I'm sorry, who is who is they? When you say they the beat white him, people. Okay, thank you. The, the I, I'm sometimes nice and call them Europeans, but they, of course, they were the white people. And then uh, after that, uh, well, Buddy Lamont got killed. And there was, or not Buddy Lamont, Wesley Badheart Bull. Uh, Wesley Badheart Bull was killed uh, in, I think it was Buffalo Gap uh, in South Dakota when a white service station owner uh, named Schmidt killed him. And for no reason. And and the people could not get any justice. They, they tried every way to get justice. The Lakota people did. And then they called AIM, and that is when they met at Calico Hall and asked for for help. And then that, shortly after that was the the takeover of Wounded Knee. But it worked. Uh, it was the price was high, and that battleground uh, that was Wounded Knee, those folks suffered, and I, I'm eternally sorry for that. But from that came a, a great, the American Indian Movement was a catalyst. Uh, there's been great legislation that has been passed for our people since then, and and the people have uh, bonded together. And I believe that the the the, the people, the United States, the, the white people are aware now of who we are, and we want to teach our children a different history than than was taught to us elders when we were growing up. We want them to know the real true history of our people, that we weren't just a bunch of ignorant savages, that there were monumental things that were accomplished on this land way before the Europeans ever got here, that there were cities bigger than Paris, uh, where the Ohio River meets the Mississippi. Dwayne, I'm sorry, we're, we're going to have to wrap up the show now. We are out of time, but but thank you to you, Dwayne Camp, also Walter Little Moon and Russ Dibo for sharing their memories and insights on the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee. Join us tomorrow when we look into how payday lenders target native borrowers and how you can protect yourself from paying exorbitantly high interest rates. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities.
For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.